arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Who's the medical examiner? Quincy. Oh, no. This is all she had with her? Yeah, bathing suit top here, and a pack of cigarettes in the pocket, and that's about it. You know, nothing special. Well, what I mean is that there didn't seem to be anything especially special. A pack of cigarettes in a pocket. You notice the brand? Yeah, they're, uh... I, I was very, very careful. Evening, Quincy. Nice to see you. Well, what does it look like to you? It looks like you still haven't told your men what not to do at the scene of a homicide. I suppose we've obliterated the fatal scientific clue that could have nailed this rapist in his track. You may never know, Lieutenant. Look, Quincy, I work with other medical examiners all day, all week. They don't get in my way, I don't get in theirs, and we solve a lot of cases. In other words, they stay out of the way of my detectives. I don't let my boys put their fingers in your cotton-picking swabs. I was wondering how she got here. Didn't you ever hear of public transportation? In Los Angeles? Now, Quincy, stop trying to make out of this more than a simple rape. I never knew there was such a thing. You know what I mean. I know what you mean. It always moves the plot along when there's an adversarial relationship with the authorities. And Quincy is the guy who can do it. He can find what seems like inconsequential clues to a murder. Jones in this episode clashes with Pinky Harris from the state police and his nemesis Herbert Lane, but he also finds a clue, a clue that doesn't seem to be much at the time. Hooper is presenting himself to be a huge pain, Detective Hooper as he calls himself. Where was Webster Howard killed? When Reverend Bricker enters the Colonial House restaurant, he and Father Gallagher become contentious. Lark and Flo are also in the same restaurant and babble and babble and babble and say nothing. Lark's theories about the murder and other stories send Joan's head spinning. And the Reverend has a pesky legal problem and storms out of L.G. Bentley's office. Jones, meanwhile, goes again to the boat and studies the piece of evidence that Strickland thinks is a long shot. Let's get on with episode two of The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton, starting now. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 5. In front of the Colonial House's brick facade, Coco's cell line rang again. Three times last night, Jones had attempted to make contact with his friend. Jones, you just woke me up. Look, I tried you three times last night. Vinny, you had him checked out? Listen, Jonesy, don't be asking me about Vinny. Jones walked down the sidewalk as he spoke. Webster was murdered. I didn't do it. Who did? I don't know nothing. Did your phantom think Webster did something to Vinny? Coco said nothing for a few seconds. Jonesy, that horse was not running right on Sunday. Remember, Driscoll was there for ten minutes. Well, he didn't do anything. Come on, Coco. Jones stared at the phone screen as Coco's photo icon dissolved. Then he opened the heavy Colonial House doors. Franny waved at him where she waited with Father Gallagher and Joanne Crowley at a rear table. Jones smiled and flipped his head, but he quickly turned toward the function room. Little Clyde Hooper in his checkered shirt and pleated beige pants lingered on the lobby's landline phone. He spotted Jones and slammed the receiver. Ah, just the man I wanted to see. Hooper. Let's get a few things straight. I'm not officially working for anyone. If Lark hired you because of that boat accident, that's fine. Jones turned to leave. <laughs> I've encountered jealousy in my dealings with intelligence. I'm not jealous, he said, facing Hooper. Now, if you will excuse me. Jones started for the inside doors, but Hooper blocked his path. Now, now, let's not be hasty, MJ. Don't call me MJ, said Jones, physically moving him aside. Again, he stepped in front of Jones. Ha! <laughs> Take the high ground, I say. Hooper, you're starting to give me a bad feeling right in my gut. You know what I mean? Good, I've got your interest. 
out of my way. He marched forward. Hooper backed against the wall, and Jones finally entered the restaurant. Hooper leaned through the open doorway. Remember, I have intelligence connections all around the world. Jones rolled his eyes on the way to the rear table. Father Gallagher's voice boomed out in an animated conversation with Joanne Crowley. That's what I told the people of the parish, and they came up with the money. That wasn't a problem because it was a good cause. How are you, Joanne? Where's Leo? Well, he's supposed to be on his way over. You know Leo, probably running an errand for somebody. Gallagher, still in his dark shirt and Roman collar, looked up at Jones. Well, finally, Matthias. Good morning, Jim. We were just talking about Mabel Howard, Webster's wife. They were married 23 years, said Joanne, shaking her head. Who would do this? Well, it's all a mystery right now, said Jones. Gallagher slid his coffee cup and large frame toward the wall as Jones sat down. What does Mabel say about all this? Joanne's face tightened. She's in a state of shock more than anything else. Her family is from Millbury. Maybe she'll go back up there. Any kids? asked Jones. No. Jones again checked the Colonial House for Hooper. What about the argument down at Hanson's Marina before Webster left? Joanne shrugged her shoulders. She didn't say... I need to speak with this woman, said Jones. Franny set a cup of coffee on the table. Light and sweet, Matthias. Well, thank you, Franny. What about the usual, she asked. Talk me into it, said Jones. Gallagher stared at Jones as Franny headed for the kitchen. He raised his brows and smiled. What? We'll see. Hooper held a notepad and pencil in front of the Main Street windows. Oh, no. What's the matter, Matthias? asked Joanne. Clyde Hooper. Oh, Detective Hooper, said Gallagher. He introduced himself earlier. He's not a detective of anything, said Jones, getting flustered. Well, he told me he was a government operative. Jones briefly closed his eyes. Hooper maintained his position up front, but looked away as Jones stared at him. He said he had worldwide intelligence connections. Yeah, well, I think he should worry about the intelligence connection between his shoulder and his head. Now, now, Matthias, said Gallagher, let's respect the man. Jones pretended to bite his tongue as Franny brought him bacon, eggs, toast, raisin bran, and orange juice. Thank you, Franny. Gallagher again raised his brows as she left. Jim, why do you keep raising your eyebrows? I'll mind my own business. This could be an historic moment, said Jones as Joanne and Gallagher laughed. What's the latest from Clayton Morris? Well, Clayton didn't do the autopsy, Jim. One of his college grad kids did it. Some guy named Stubble. Well, what did Stubble say? Blow to the back of the head with a blunt instrument. My question, Jim, is why did Webster leave on Monday night? I specifically saw a woman on the bluffs looking over the bay. Well, Locke was about to ram the boat. No, not at first. There was supposed to be a big storm, wasn't there, Father? asked Joanne. That's true. They didn't mention the storm until Tuesday morning. I remember. We were all afraid we'd have to move the Women's Club bake sale into the parish hall. Hooper was no longer up front, nor was he anywhere in the restaurant. Jones turned to his friends. Webster was an experienced fisherman. He must have had access to the national weather forecast. Obviously, we didn't get the storm and it went out to sea. When they changed the forecast is essential because he just wouldn't sail into a storm coming up the coast. Well, Webster had the information before anyone else you're saying, asked Gallagher. Maybe he was trying to beat the storm, and that's why he left early, said Joanne. Well, that's true. Jones stroked his chin and let his suspicions travel down the side road. A potential killer planning to commit a crime at sea would have the perfect accomplice in a storm, sweeping Webster Howard's body and the maintenance-free out to sea. What are you thinking, Matthias? Jones let the steam rise off the coffee. I'm just trying to sort out a side road theory, Father. Gallagher pointed to Jones. Where he was killed is important. There was no blood on the boat, correct? Nothing on the boat but blood on Webster. Webster could have been murdered on another boat or anywhere. Then they dragged him onto the maintenance free. Why drag him downstairs? asked Joanne. I think he tried to get to the radio. He was alive, and he almost got to the radio. Maybe he broadcast something, said Gallagher. Somebody would have reported a plea for help, said Jones, hitting his clenched fist on the table. Gallagher pressed his lips. But who would want Webster dead? He had no enemies. I know, I know. As if he were about to step in the boxing ring, an angry look swept over Gallagher's face. 
The bearded Reverend Bricker, blonde-haired, disheveled, alternated grimaces at Gallagher as he waited to be seated. Gallagher spoke clearly. Ah, his highness has arrived. Well, I frankly don't understand his attitude about that Washington Street land. Gallagher slowly nodded as he stood. All I ask is a little courtesy and possibly an explanation. Jim, don't go over there. Sometimes things are better settled up front. Jones looked into Joanne's dark eyes. Welcome to tonight's fights, round two. I'm waiting for the KO, said Franny as she sat next to Joanne. Matthias, stop him, said Joanne. Once father gets his mindset on something, he's like a freight train rumbling down the track. I give three to one on Gallagher, coach, said Franny. I'm with you, Franny, said Jones. Gallagher had already reached Bricker and extended his hand, but the Reverend did not reciprocate. I do not wish to be disturbed, said Bricker in a loud, whining, elite voice. Gallagher's booming pulpit voice resounded throughout the colonial house. Reverend! Reverend, I can understand that it's your private business whether you sell that land on Washington Street. And I know you want it to go to the youth group. I will personally support your youth group in their camp on the Pequonicut. He looks pretty upset, said Franny as she stood. You need to halt all plans for a chapel on Washington Street. Kind of a man of the cloth, are you? shouted Gallagher, pointing his finger. Listen, you wannabe, hell will freeze over before I give up trying to build that chapel. Because you're being stubborn as your own private business. Jones swung his foot around and quickly crossed the restaurant. Bricka's face had reddened. The reverend's blue eyes were unusually intense. You're right, it is my private business, Gallagher. Father Gallagher, Bricker. The reverend stared at the taller Gallagher for a second. Come on, Jim, said Jones. Jones tugged Gallagher back across the restaurant. Gallagher turned to Jones at the rear table. What is wrong with that man? I would drop it, Jim. You can find other land for that chapel. Gallagher gawked at Bricker. You're talking to a former New England Slam Gloves champion, Matthias. Well, round's over, father. Leo Crowley finished a second round of bacon and eggs. I'll be around town today, Leo. He did not want to mention that he planned to visit the Reverend Bricker at the First Parish Church later that morning. I'll be out at the orchard spraying the bugs out of the trees. Jones's cell phone rang. Matthias Jones. Coach, this is Bucky Driscoll. Bucky, I'm busy. I'm investigating Webster's murder with Detective Hooper. Jones did not know how to respond. His mouth froze open as he held his phone. Yeah, I'm here, Bucky. Well, good luck. We want you to help us. Jones heard Hooper in the background. Oh, just tell him we need his help. We need his help. Is Hooper feeding you questions? Uh-oh. The phone jostled and Hooper was on the line. I concur with Mr. Driscoll's request, MJ. We'll meet you in your office in half an hour. Hooper, I'm not meeting with you in half an hour or ten days from now. Forty-five minutes. How about never? He shut down the cell. He shook his head and tucked the phone back in his parker pocket. Franny tightened her eyes. Well, I hate to add to your misery, Coach. What do you mean, Franny? She held his wrist. Too late. Jones turned his lark in his flashy orange blazer with a green tie and flow in a pink and green flowery dress started down toward the rear table. She clutched Lark's arm as they approached. Ah, here come the boat survivors, said Gallagher from the table. We're just getting our late brunch, proclaimed Lark. That's redundant, Lark. Why, thank you, Matthias. Flo tilted her head toward the ceiling as she spoke in a squeaky voice. I never want to go out in any boat again. Not to worry, Snookums. Detective Hooper has assured me he will offer an instructional course before we set sail again. What does Hooper know about boats, asked Jones. Oh, part of his intelligence work, old boys, the UK Pathfinders. Lark, that man couldn't bag groceries at Delmonico's. His photographic mind is connected to intelligence. Yeah, short-circuited, mumbled Jones. What was that, old boy? Just a passing comment, Lark, about the illustrious Mr. Hooper. Detective Hooper! You should fire him, Lark, now that you've figured out the Howard murder. Well, you should fire him anyways, said Jones. He's got Bucky Driscoll working with him. Oh, thank God for that. And he's working gratis. You're kind of guy, Lark. 
Locke ushered Flo into a side booth. He sat upright with a whimsical smile on his face. I do have this figured out, and it's all pretty simple. Oh, really? Franny, autopad in hand, opened her eyes. Can I get you coffee, Lark? I'll have blackberry tea, said Lark. Ditto, added Flo. Franny again looked at Jones as she headed into the kitchen. I told this to Pinky Harris. A fisherman, a fisherman, get it? No, I don't get it, Lark, said Jones, thinking how Pinky Harris tried to block his inquiries. Here's how I see it. He leaned across the table and again squinted his blue eyes, magnified behind his glasses. Oh, Lark, <laughs> giggled Flo. At sea, mysterious things can happen to witnesses. That's how they got them. They? The passing trawler. Jones folded his arms. What passing trawler? I say they lured him in, said Lark softly, quickly raising his voice as he grabbed Flo by the arm. Then they got him. Oh, don't scare me, Lark. Jones visualized the long red scrape, certain it was relevant to the investigation. Yes, don't scare her, Lark. Lark swears the fishermen were Canadian, right, Lark? asked Flo. Revenge on Webster for all the fish he caught. Then they got him. Oh, Snookums, you're such a kidder. See, said Lark, gesturing with his hands like a politician, showing a vision for the country. Webster was a mechanical genius. He was? asked Jones. Sure, he fixed my toilet. Locke snapped his fingers. Bingo! Can you beat that? And that toilet is still running, Matthias. Well, that's a great story, Locke. I really do have to be going. Franny returned with the tea. Let it seep for a minute, Locke. Do you have to go now, Matthias? asked Locke. I was about to tell you about the 1941 double draw. Some other time. The double draw, Franny, was ahead of its time. Yes, I'm sure it was legendary, Lark, said Franny, moving up front. No one ever used the double drawer again. Jones slowly backed toward Gallagher's table as Lark continued to pontificate. What was that all about? asked Gallagher. Canadian fisherman. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton. Chapter 6 Jones shifted his jeep and passed through the campus into town. Gallagher's offering to help Bricker's youth group was a good gesture, but Bricker's attitude had Gallagher all the more adamant to build a chapel. Bricker had fought Gallagher when Gallagher demonstrated sincerity. He shifted his jeep again near Larson Field and started up the hill toward Main Street. Jones braked and downshifted. Clyde Hooper raised his hand and stepped in the middle of the road. Jones jammed on the brakes. Hooper marched up to the jeep hood. I correctly figured you'd be on this road. Wouldn't it be easier just to use a phone, Hooper, rather than plop yourself in the middle of the road? Detective Hooper, why are you standing in front of my Jeep? What is it you want? Aha, cut to the chase. Yes, no small talk. I like that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Hooper rounded the hood and stood along the passenger side. Now let's get down to brass tackles. That's brass tacks. Tax, tax, of course, yes. What do you have, a reservoir of cliches? asked Jones. Jones pulled past Hooper. Be glad I tracked you down, said Hooper, appearing inside the jeep window. Then he looked both ways down the sidewalk. What are you doing? Hooper pulled his head back in the jeep. Always be prepared, Jones. Webster Howard's murderer is lurking out there. Well, that's true, but not here, Hooper. While you've been living it up at the Colonial House... Driscoll and I have been doing journeyman's service. I know I'll hate myself for asking, but what do you found? Hooper squinted his beady eyes. Well, again he spoke in a whisper. Howard's wife is very suspicious. I've learned, Jones, that she spends beyond her means. Oh, really? Howard fought to make money. Well, he had many different jobs. Ahead on Main Street, the Reverend Bricker's P.T. Cruiser raced around the common. Hooper's head snapped forward. Bricker? Bricker is shifty. Well, he is reverend of the first parish church. Jones shifted and started to pull out. Hooper trotted alongside the jeep. Where do you think you're going, Jones? None of your business. Jones stopped briefly at the main street corner as Bricker bounced into Pudgy Wilson's gas station. A winded Hooper clawed his way up to Jones's window a half a minute later. Jones, we need to discuss the handyman's murder. Discuss, said Jones, inching onto Main Street. 
Bricker stopped under the pump lights. A young kid emerged from the gas station. Bricker yelled something out the window as Jones pulled forward. Now, Jones, I believe Webster Howard had a mission. We all have missions in life, Hooper. Jones stepped from the Jeep and meandered down the sidewalk. The kid stuck the gas nozzle into the tank. Jones, you're evading me, said Hooper, catching his breath. Oh, what made you think that? How did Lark find you anyways? I did detective work against his opponents when he was a coach. <laughs> Lark didn't exactly have a winning record. In the warm morning air, Jones stepped onto the gas station cement. Brooker looked up from the inside of the window of his PT cruiser. Coach Jones! Reverend? Bricker had shed his collar and his powder gray shirt was unbuttoned. What's the problem? I didn't know there was a problem. His yellow teeth were chiseled and his brown beard curled upward when he smiled. He spoke slowly and precisely and swept his head with every word. You think I don't know Father Gallagher sent you over here to coax me out of my position in regard to the land proposition? You sound like you're giving a legal deposition, Bricker, joked Jones. The Reverend's steely eyes remained fixed. The land is not for sale, Jones. Why not? Who cares? The land belongs to First Parish Church, and as the pastor of that church, I have made that decision. And furthermore, what kind of an arrogant priest does he think he is? Is there more than one? Bricker didn't flinch, and Jones's smile dropped. He thinks he can just dictate what my church can and cannot do. As far as I'm concerned, that's good enough reason for him and his ilk to stay in Prince William. Guess I understand your position, Reverend. I can only say that Jim Gallagher is a friend, and I really don't understand what you have against him. Excuse me? I see no reason why you can't bend a little bit and sell Gallagher the land. It would mean money for First Parish. Since when did churches not want to fill the coffers? You're Gallagher's friend, and I don't like you, Jones. The gas nozzle clicked, and Bricker looked at the pump. Pudgy Wilson himself waddled from the garage. Hey, Pudge, I didn't know you were on tonight. Well, when you own the business, you're always on. And Chucky's on vacation. He and Donna went to Disney. Well, there's no place like home. Pudgy leaned back and laughed. Yeah, I guess so. Hey, I really have to go, said Bricker in a loud voice. Hold your horses there, Reverend, said Pudgy. I have an appointment, said Bricker, stomping. All right, all right, replied Pudgy. He pulled the nozzle out and placed it back in the pump. That'll be $15, Reverend. Put it on the church's tab. I told you that tab is full. I want cash. Call the church office. Bricker started the car and quickly cut a narrow arc back to Main Street. A smoky exhaust trail fanned out of the PT Cruiser and back to the station as he raced toward the traffic lights. Well, that PT Cruiser is old, but it sure could use an engine overhaul. He could use an engine overhaul, said Jones. I'm sorry, Pudge. I know you're a member of First Parish. Well, the old Reverend Appleby got quite a following, but this guy, well, he's such a dipstick. Jones grinned and gave Pudgy a tap on the shoulder. Have a good one there, Pudge. You too, Matthias. Jones paused at the Jeep but did not see Hooper. He walked around the Jeep and checked the rear seat. Hooper, where are you? He climbed back in the driver's seat. A kid's playback toy was stuck on the visor. Jones pushed the button and Hooper's annoying voice vibrated in the tiny speaker. I'm on the run and undercover. I suggest you follow up on the napkin and the other evidence, and then this case will be closed. Not a stitch undone. Hooper out. Jones shook his head and started the Jeep. He glanced at the playback toys he veered onto Main Street, but Bricka's attitude really bothered him. Now he understood why Gallagher was so upset. Maybe it was because of his position within the small town that Bricker was both pompous and arrogant. Jones thought back about the land. Just about six months ago, around Christmas time, the blue and red Abrams Realty for Sale sign came down. No one had expressed an interest in purchasing the land, yet six months later, Gallagher was a legitimate buyer and Bricker would not sell. Jones had the green light started around the common, but hit a bump. With the bump, the recording on the visor went off again. I'm on the run and undercover. I suggest you follow up on the napkin and the other evidence.
completely closed. Not a stitch undone. Hooper out. Oh, shut up, Hooper. He ripped the toy from the visor and chucked it out the window and it rolled back toward the common. Unfortunately, Hooper was right. The napkin was related to the murder and Webster Howard was likely murdered at a place called R slash L. Witnesses at R slash L might help unfold the investigation. And Pinky Harris had taken all the evidence to the lab. Maybe Pinky knew more than he was saying. Jones looked back uptown. Hooper's PT cruiser was gone in front of the cornucopia. He passed the bank and rounded the west side of the common. Pinky had an odd antipathy about the whole case. Sharing any evidence, such as why Webster went out to sea earlier than usual, seemed remote. Jones sensed that Webster tried to beat the pending storm, but his hurried pace and the argument with his wife at the dock was suspicious. The crux of the case was Webster heading to sea early for nefarious purposes, maybe a drug run. He smiled at the absurdity. Webster appeared to be an innocent handyman with no sinister motives or bad habits. In the evening, Jones hiked around the common as he thought over Webster's murder. He peered up at Bricka's huge white church at the far end of the common. The prodigious pane-glass windows were dark and the steeple rose high into the night air. As he walked down the sidewalk, Franny, sipping a drink, appeared on her porch. She moved down the stairs. You're thinking about Webster's death? Yeah. Drink? Jones sniffed the glass. It's water. I'll take a water. Do I have to leave a tip? Yes, you do, she said, heading back up the steps. She returned less than a minute later and handed him the bottled water. Thanks. Jones gulped the water. Where's that nincompoop pooper, the guy that Locke hired? Oh, yeah. Why did Locke hire him? It's pretty obvious Webster was killed somewhere else and deposited on the boat. Hooper is doing it gratis. Why? Who knows where Locke finds these jokers? Jones looked across the common to the glow at L.G. Bentley's law office windows. Bricka's P.T. Cruiser was parked awkwardly in the side alley. What is it? asked Franny. Bricker. He's in L.G.'s office. Well, Harriet Graham started going to that church in Henderson because of Bricker. Well, he certainly is giving Father Gallagher a hard time. Matthias, look at Bricker, said Franny, pointing to L.G.'s window. L.G., visible through the window, swiveled in his brown leather chair. Bricker waved papers in L.G.'s face. He gyrated and gestured before hurling the papers onto the desk. L.G. sprang from the chair, scooped up a piece of paper, and held it in front of Bricker. Bricker snatched the sheet and the rest of the papers on the desk and then bolted out of sight. L.G. pounded his fist on the desk and then sat down. He reached in the drawer and pulled out a cigar, lighting it quickly. Jones could almost smell the smoke. The side entrance slammed across the common. The reverend rounded the corner in his car and raced toward the church's circular drive at the end of the common. What was that all about? asked Jones. L.G. held a phone to his ear as Bricker's red taillights went dark at the other end of the common. Plain and simple, said Franny. What do you mean? The guy makes trouble wherever he goes. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 7 Jones stood on the bridge where the woman in the SUV had watched Lark crash into the maintenance free. He crunched a warm Big Mama's English muffin between his teeth as he listened to Tom McGill on the phone yawn in his Enterprise office. Matthias have checked up the main coast to Cape Cod. Can't find anything. Companies, restaurants, anything named R slash L. Nothing. Jones swished a Big Mama's super coffee around his mouth. Well, it's a question of how far the maintenance free would go. Captain Sarum filled the tank. I'm sure there's a maximum radius Webster could have gone and still have brought the boat back to the bay. Unless he refilled somewhere else. I have a practice this afternoon, Tom, and Hamilton Fletcher is supposed to pop by. Well, you should go back into first after the Norwich game. No, that's not it. Word's gotten around about Bucky working for Hooper. Apparently Bucky set up a roadblock by Hanson's Marina while Hooper snooped around. Captain took out his harpoon gun after Bucky. So he left? Bucky told the captain he liked a challenge and he told him to bring it on. The captain fired the harpoon and called Bucky a mental midget and then he left. Bucky ran down Shore Road. Then the captain had to deal with Hooper. Why? Well, Hooper went underwater ops. For what reason? The idiot took off underwater by the jetty. Who knows where he is? Hopefully Bermuda. 
Oh, you know, he keeps giving Bucky breaks. I don't know why. He should just fire him, and he doesn't. He wants me to pretend that I want Bucky helping me, and I really don't want to do that. But Hamilton Fletcher does. Well, the exact quote was, Get Driscoll away from that fool. That's an order. Well, Hooper is a fool. Hooper seems to have a legitimate background, Tom. Oh, I heard his long resume, Matthias. Intelligence service, courses, rank, secret operations. I threw him out of here after he started checking my phone line for bugs. You're kidding. No, and he said Mabel Howard would try and break in and steal my files. I tried calling Mabel Howard and got voicemail again. Where the hell is she? Well, I should go over there, too. Call me if you find anything, Matthias. Okay, Tom, I'll talk to you later. Jones stared into the mass of flickering flashes across the Hamilton Bay waters. He briefly pictured Bricker in LG's office, but his thoughts quickly changed like the surf breaking along the shore. Now he focused on the murder in the restaurant R-slash-L napkin. On the other side of the marina bridge, George Strickland's white and blue Hamilton cruiser pulled into the tall grass off the highway. Strickland crossed to the deck outside the harbormaster's house. He waved Jones down the boardwalk. The captain smoked his pipe as Jones started through the grass and onto the boardwalk. You're out early, Matthias. Captain making breakfast? Captain Kendall lifted a heavy pewter stein from the deck railing. I'm having my breakfast. Jones's phone rang as he walked along the boardwalk. Matthias Jones. Hey. Hey. Jonesy, I need your help. What happened? Listen, JB came over to the club. Well, I'll get you your 50 bucks. You win. Will you listen to me? Number one, the entities that own Vinny think somebody slipped something in Vinny's water to slow him down, and they think Driscoll knows something about it. So what? So what? JB didn't see Driscoll doing nothing. You dating her? asked Jones. What I've done is my business. She was at the track, too. She's goody two-shoes. She does a lot of volunteer work and charity work. Great. She was at the bridge. Was that her? Yeah. She mentioned Larson's accident. That boat was supposed to go down in the storm, Coco. What's going on with the Howard murder? Did she see anything strange at the track? I don't know. Driscoll could tell you that. I doubt the moron did anything to Vinny, but he's stupid enough to be used by somebody else. Webster was pretty sick, but it might connect with his murder. Now you don't know that, Jonesy. Jones looked back to the captain, talking with Strickland. Where are you, anyway? I'm away. With her? Never mind. Listen. Find Driscoll. The rodent likes you. Pressure him about Vinny and then get back to me. I'll talk to you. Wait. What? J.B. boards her horse at Hamilton Fletcher's stable. So what? Just find Driscoll. Jones shared his thoughts about Janet Boudreaux with Strickland but he refused to tell Strickland just how he got his information. Strickland sent Wendell up to the stables to ask questions, and then he and Jones descended the stairs to the lower docks. Once again, Jones began studying the maintenance free. Jones pointed at the red scrape along the bow. What did you find out about that scrape, George? Pinky has done absolutely zero. Jones squatted down and ran his fingertips along the red scrape, hardened to the white bow paint. Then he looked up. You mind if I get this thing analyzed? Well, Pinky should... I wouldn't rely on Pinky to analyze a glass of water. Go right ahead. Where do you want to bring the samples? Jones stood and looked up the stairs at the harbormaster's shingled house. I'll ask the captain for a knife and a plastic bag. So you get the paint information. Jones walked over to Strickland. That paint is either off a boat or a dock, not a huge impact. I'm gambling it's from around here, because this is where Webster housed his boat. Sounds like a long shot to me. Well, I have to meet with Hamilton Fletcher this afternoon. I'll have Fletcher paint send it to their labs. Let me know, said Strickland, looking up at the marina bridge. His cell phone rang. Yes, Wendell. Hold on. Strickland handed his notebook and pen to Jones. Then he put Wendell on the speaker. Okay, Wendell, what have you got? Well, I talked to this woman named Misty. Boy, what a looker. Wendell. Janet Boudreaux competes in horse shows and has a horse up here named Wilderness. Not a racing horse. Webster groomed her horse like he did the other horses. 
She's originally from Vermont. Well, what does she do? Ned did a background check. Her father, Stephen Boudreaux, is a big-time lawyer. She's living on a trust. She has a nice condo in the Alpine Complex on Route 32, just before the notch. And she does volunteer work and raises money for charities. She came here from Vermont about three years ago. She have a record? No, no record. Anything else about her? Well, her dog Hunter was poisoned ten days ago. And how did that happen? Don't know, George. Well, find out, Wendell. Oh, okay. I can talk to Misty. Just find out about the dog story. Sure. Strickland shut off the phone and stared at Jones. Between Pinky and Wendell, I'm going to go jump off the Crosstown Bridge. Want me to drive you over, George? Yeah, right. So we have her dog poisoned, and then we have her on the bridge when Lark performed his speedboat fiasco, and we have her back at the track. Somehow they're all connected, George. Jones looked back at the maintenance-free. There was no fish at all caught on this boat. So he leaves early, and where does he go? Jones again focused on the red bow scrape. Maybe he really went out to beat the storm, but wasn't able to fish. That's possible, answered Strickland. But he had a radio, and he would have listened to the National Weather Service. This is true. Webster, said Jones, would have known once he was out there that the storm did indeed go out to sea. I say the killer didn't realize the forecast had changed. You mean the killer thought the boat would go down? The perfect crime. Exactly. That was a powerful storm, George. Why would Webster have come back to Hamilton Bay knowing the weather was clear? He would have stayed out there and fished. I understand that, unless he was up to something else. My dad used to tell me the obvious is the obvious. There are no fish aboard that boat, and the storm went out to sea. Question is, where did they kill him? Not why and who, but where. That's the key. And that bow scrape tells me something happened at sea. They started back to the stairs to the upper level. Pinky talked to Mabel Webster. She said that she and Webster were supposed to go out to eat, and that's why they argued before he left the marina. Where, to R slash L? No, they were going to the Colonial House. George, we need to talk to her. I don't trust Pinky. Just have a bad feeling about him. I find it hard to believe Mrs. Howard would get that upset because of a canceled dinner. There has to be more, maybe drugs. Oh, you don't know that. Pinky should have asked Mrs. Howard. Well, I don't know her that well, but she sounds like someone who is trying to act refined and can't cut it. Does she have an alibi? asked Jones. Listen to this. At home, no witnesses. Oh, how convenient. Jones scanned the clear blue waters. I think he went out there for another reason. Matthias, Webster was just a handyman in a small town, a guy who minded his own business. To transform this into something bigger is a leap. Jones stroked his chin. No, the whole thing, the napkin, the early trip to sea, no fish. They reached the upper level, but Jones steered back at the boat. I'd paint my boat if I struck the boat of a dead man. There are 7,000 people in Hamilton, not counting the students. Somebody must own a red-bottom boat. Don't get yourself into trouble with speculation. Jones erupted. Speculation? Hooper's brown pickup was parked across the bridge. Hooper was now at the bridge rail, pointing a camera at the two men. What the hell is he doing now? He's filming us. George, you need to tell this guy to back off. Jones pulled Strickland past the post. I have two additional thoughts. How did Webster get down to the marina? His truck's not here. His truck is at his house. So you're saying he walked five miles down here to get on the boat? I don't know. You don't know? Well, the killer could have driven him down here. I'm telling you, he said as he looked back at the boat. You need to get dogs in that boat and check for drugs. We don't have dogs, Matthias. I got enough problems trying to get the selectman to approve money for Wendell and Ned. Strickland gazed back at the maintenance-free and thought, Don Pacheco does have dogs and Prince William, but I'm not going to bother him on some wild guess. All the boys at the PWPD think we live in the sticks anyways. We do live in the sticks. Then have Pinky get them. He peered around the post. Hooper and the truck were gone. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 8 Jones leaned back in the unstable chair behind the office desk. Nigel Kent, dean of students, prattled on about the upcoming faculty meeting. 
Jones looked into Nigel's brown eyes, magnified through his glasses, but his mind was set on the murder. He wanted to find the identity of the woman waiting on the bridge. Although the R-slash-L napkin might not prove conclusive, Jones sensed it was a part of composite evidence surrounding Webster Howard's last hours on Earth. In 20 minutes, he and Strickland were supposed to speak with Mabel Howard. Her argument with Webster still bothered Jones, and he wanted to know exactly how Webster traveled to the marina. Excuse me, Matthias, said Nigel. You seem to be off in another world somewhere. I'm sorry, Nigel. I was going to check on your progress with the students. Progress? Yes, on the video you're producing for the faculty meeting. Oh, right, yeah, the video. Nigel leaned forward and looked over the top of his glasses. Well? Our problem is putting it all together. I have all the team sports ready to go. All year, Mark's been sticking a video camera or phone camera in somebody's face. We just have to string it all together and add the sound. Good, good. And your friend, the Reverend Bricker, has agreed to say an invocation. Oh, wonderful. I know you'll put the proper Fletcher spin on this video. Jones steadied himself in the chair. The Fletchers will love it. Ham will. He's younger. But I'm not so sure about Hamilton, said Nigel. Don't even worry. The whole film will center around the Fletchers as the benefactors of the town and the college, and I'll have a clip of Hamilton himself that I'm filming at Fletcher Hill, said Jones as the desk phone rang. He almost lost his balance in the chair as he reached for the receiver. I'm putting in a new chair in the budget for you. And get rid of this thing? He gripped the phone and it kept ringing. This was Locke's chair. It's of historical significance. Oh, really, Matthias? He put the phone to his ear. Matthias Jones, I'm in the area, whispered an almost indiscernible voice. Who is this? Curiosity. Kill the cat, Jones. The line went dead and he banged back on the hook. Hello, hello. Who was that? No, it had to be Hooper. Hooper? Jones stood still staring at the phone. It had to be that idiot. Oh, who exactly is Hooper? asked Nigel. He thinks he's a detective, and maybe he is. Lark hired him to look into the Webster Howard murder. As I said, he's not a detective of anything. Phone rang again, and Jones ripped up the receiver. Listen, you little pea brain, stop bugging me and stay out of this. What do you mean, pea brain? asked Strickland. Oh, George. Bugging you? Forget it, forget it. What did I do? It's not you. I thought it was that dumbbell Hooper. Then you know what I'm talking about. He snuck up on me out back. I almost shot him. He said he had valuable information, but he wouldn't tell me what it was. Then I threw him out. Jones sat in the tipsy chair and pinched the bridge of his nose. Well, I do have something. The captain said the tank was nearly empty. Webster had to have gone around 250 miles, anywhere from Cape Cod to the coast of Maine. If he went in a straight line, George. Well, this is true. I've been reviewing Stubble's report. More on Webster. Excuse me, Nigel, I'll only be a minute. No, please, go ahead. Strickland rustled some papers and began reading. Webster died between 3 and 4 a.m. They found half-digested chicken marcella in his stomach and some wine, not enough to make him drunk. Does Stubble know exactly when Webster had the chicken marcella? He's convinced that Webster was not attacked on the maintenance free. But he was placed there. What was that all about? Nothing to do with the murder. Now, Webster was hit in the head with a heavy, blunt instrument. Cracked his skull. Paper towels were used to wipe down his body and the shirt, and then the cap was placed on his head. No fingerprints, nothing. How did he get back on the maintenance free? He had to have been dragged. Slight contusions under the armpit. Work shoes are scuffed. Apparently, the killer took him for dead. Nigel stood. Well, I have to go, Matthias. I apologize, Nigel. No need to. Brief me later on the progress of the faculty film. I will. Nigel left the office and opened the gym lobby doors. George, if the killer believed the storm was coming... Well, that's the interesting part. Stubble thinks Webster was deposited on the deck. Thus, he'd be washed out to sea in the storm. Somehow, he had the strength, and may have taken hours, to crawl below. Stubble believes the bruises on his arms and ribs were from a fall down the stairs and there's minute blood splattering along the stairway. Webster almost activated that radio. Jones tried to imagine the scenario. Then it must have happened at sea. Who knows? Maybe on a red-bottom boat? Well, that does sound logical.
said Strickland. There are lateral currents along the coast. The boat could have drifted back toward Hamilton. Listen, I'll be over there in ten minutes. I want you with me when I question Mabel Howard. Wait. Webster was already sick in his stomach last Sunday. You think it's related? Maybe they tried to kill him at the track. I wouldn't go that far. I'll be out in front of the gym. Bye, George. Jones set down the phone and went over to the small office cooler and grabbed a soda. He opened the can and let the cola trickle down his throat. But as he turned, Clyde Hooper sat on the edge of his desk. Hooper, what are you doing here? And why are you threatening me on the phone? You know what? asked Jones, squeezing the can as he crossed the room. I've had it with you. I've left my truck on Main Street and set out on foot. Oh, wonderful. A walkie-talkie sounded on Hooper's belt. It's all clear here at the marina. I hear you, Walter. Walter, asked Jones. That's Bucky Driscoll. Walter, I told you it's M5. Somebody might be listening. Oh, yeah, M5, M5. Hooper clipped the radio back on his belt and stood up straight. Fortunately, Jones, Driscoll will follow my orders to the letter. I fully intend to find that mystery woman in the green SUV. Right, Hooper, now beat it. Ho, ho, ho! I wasn't born yesterday. Oh, really? I was going to send you a birthday card, said Jones as he moved forward. Oh, yes, yes, your sense of humor. I will connect the dots with reckless abandon, old boy, he said using one of Lark's expressions. That makes zero sense. Wait a minute. Aren't you curious about my logic with my connecting the dots theory? Jones sipped the soda and headed out of the office. I'll get you a coloring book. Then you must have done some connecting yourself. Yes, yes, said Hooper, following him. You have your own men out in the field, right? I don't have anyone working for me, nor am I connected with anything. I'm about to break this case, he said in a high-pitched voice as Jones bounded into the gym lobby. Hooper trailed him past the trophy display cases. Clyde Hooper will not rest until justice is served. Jones continued through the lobby and pushed open the outside doors. When Hooper grabbed him out front, his anger surged. Hooper, get lost. Get out of the investigation. Get out of my life. But I've been hired on the ball peen. Jones stood at the curb, shaking his head as he waited for Strickland's cruiser to appear around the corner. A ball peen is a machinist hammer used for metalwork. Wrong again, Jones. The ball peen means I have to solve the crime to get paid. Oh, come on, Strickland, where are you? He said, looking across the campus. You pushed me. I wasn't going to tell you this, but I will. Jones looked into his beady eyes. Locke now thinks Webster Howard more than likely committed suicide. He what? Hooper had an odd smirk on his face. That's the dumbest thing you've said yet, Hooper. He almost had me fired, but well, that act would be beneficial to humanity. He said... Quote, stop looking for your killer because Webster killed himself. Sure, Hooper. I've always thought about beating myself to death using a blunt instrument in the back of my head. Well, that's where experience is the best teacher. To use the Latin, experience, experience, wait, I'll get it, I'll get it. Experience a yet. Experience teaches. Yeah, yes, I'll remember that. Strickland's white and blue cruiser barreled around the main street corner. Jones looked skyward. Oh, thank God. What was that, Jones? Listen, Hooper, why don't you go check with your secret agent, Bucky? A capital idea. And tell him I want to talk with him. Oh, no, that would break the code. Don't you want to know about Webster's suicide? Oh, not particularly. Hooper briefly touched his arms. <laughs> Credit is hard to share sometimes, eh, Jones? Locke told me that Webster placed the object on a rope and let it swing into his head. Jones exhaled deeply, but refused to look at Hooper as Strickland drove into the parking lot. Then he turned. Hooper, are you really looking for a woman at the stables? Absolutely. Let me know if you find her, said Jones as Strickland slowed. Hooper grasped Jones' arm again. Why was Webster so distraught? Who knows? I tell you, the wife was a cheetah, a cheetah. How do you know that, Hooper? I will not reveal my sources. Do you actually know that she was cheating on him? Absolutely, Jones, absolutely. 
He saluted Jones and spun around as if he were in a military parade back toward the gym. Jones briefly watched him and then opened the cruiser door. Unbelievable. Is that Hooper marching over there? Jones just shook his head. What did he want, George? You don't want to know. We got bigger problems, said Strickland, looping around the gym parking lot. What happened? O'Connell's gone. What do you mean he's gone? asked Jones. I mean A-W-O-L. He hasn't shown up at the barracks in North Paxton for two days. Pinky can't locate him. They've had troopers all over O'Connell's apartment in the Devonshire and at his house up in Newtown. The guy is gone. Vanished. You know what I'm thinking? Hooper's pickup, spewing a trail of stinky exhaust, cut in front of Strickland. Hooper beeped the lame horn several times and swerved back toward Main Street. What a jerk! Yeah, they should list that with his qualifications on Angie's list, said Jones. There are two possibilities with O'Connell. Worst possibility is the killer got to him. What's the other? He is the killer. Strickland slammed his boot against the brake pedal and the cruiser stopped in front of the cornucopia. What the hell are you saying? He could be the killer. O'Connell? That's ridiculous. On what basis? The fact is he's gone. And maybe somebody got to him. Strickland pulled to the corner and signaled right. Herbert never mentioned that at the DA's office. Herbert's too busy being impressed with himself, said Jones. Plus, he never recognizes anything I do. The Handyman's Secret by R.P. Fitton Chapter 9 Wendell said Pinky's been acting real strange lately, said Strickland. <laughs> lately? I have to call Captain Moxie. That would be nice to have the results from some of those evidence tests at the lab. Jones nodded and stared at the sloping Washington Street field a few hundred yards from Brickus Church. Strickland slowed and then stopped. Did I tell you I ran into Bricker at Pudgy's? He hates Gallagher. Well, Father could stand to be a little bit more tolerant, said Strickland. Why wouldn't Bricker sell this land? What's his problem? It was for sale six months ago. Strickland slowly drove away. Father should have Marsha Abrams find him another plot. We live in a rural town. It isn't like we're running out of land. Gallagher will never back down. Now nah, neither will Bricker. What a combination, said Jones. Strickland buzzed past rows of tall green corn stalks in the bright sun along Washington Street. The Miller farmhouse was set back on a hill within a clump of trees several hundred feet from Webster Howard's house. Webster's faded white clapboards were patched with new unpainted sections. Black shutters, missing slats, hung at angles from the window frames, and the sagging porch was cluttered with assorted debris. Strickland guided the cruiser into the long grass off the road. Jones opened the door before Strickland shut off the engine. Smoke from a sheet metal stovepipe jutted from a tiny tar-papered shack out back and spread into the warm air. Well, that's odd. What? asked Strickland, rounding the cruisers. Smoke on a warm day? Strickland nodded as they moved up the dirt driveway. A blue and gray pickup truck was parked behind a shiny red Mercedes sports car. Whose car is that? Mercedes is Mabel Howard's car. What? What's she doing with a car like that? Jones peered at the smooth white leather interior. Wow. They passed a cluster of heavily scented lilac bushes and trotted up the cracked, unpainted front steps. The porch was loaded with boards, spare machine parts, and an old musty green sofa. Strickland knocked at the screen door. Well, it looks like the handyman wasn't too handy, said Jones. Yeah, well, maybe the inside's been renovated. The inner gray panel door opened, and a plain-looking woman with thinning perm-brown hair and a flowery blue dress hid behind the screen. Oh, I thought you were Clyde. Clyde? asked Jones. Detective Hooper, he just called. She opened the screen door and looked outside to the road. I don't believe we've been introduced. Oh, yes, the police chief. I brought a friend of mine concerning Webster's death. She nodded and folded her arms across her chest. Her brow tightened and her eyes moistened. Poor Webster, not good, not good. May we come in? Yes, of course. I'm Ann Dawson. I'm Mabel's sister. Nice to meet you. She held open the screen door and motioned them inside. Heavy perfume permeated the darkened room and a huge widescreen TV blasted out a shop-at-home cable channel. A tall woman, tanned with an elongated nose and frizzy red hair, jaunted in from the rear kitchen. 
Heavy gold bracelets jingled and sharp triangular earrings dangled as she rumbled forward. Around her neck and freckled chest hung a thick gold pendant. She had huge teeth, deep green mascara, and powdered purple lipstick. She sashayed up to Jones. Hi, I'm Mabel Howard. Matthias Jones. Oh, you're one of Clyde Hooper's men. No, ma'am, I don't work for... You work for a good man. He has credentials. She picked up a silver-wrapped piece of chewing gum from the coffee table. You guys want any gum? No, no, thank you, said Jones, still disturbed about what Hooper had told her. She adjusted her loose-fitting lavender jumpsuit and sequin top. Have you made any progress, Chief? Well, we're still trying to gather the facts, Mrs. Howard. I told you before, you can call me Mabel. She scooped a gold cigarette case off the coffee table. Is that your Mercedes out there? asked Jones. Yep. She pinched a cigarette from the case and lit it with a bulky black plastic lighter. You like that? Oh, I'd like to have a car like that. She produced a schoolgirl giggle and snapped the gum as she puffed on the long cigarette. <laughs> hey, look, Annie. Shopping bonanzas advertising them Elvis flags. You drape them out the second floor of your house. They say it's going to be a collector's item. The woman on the TV set pointed at the prodigious Elvis in Las Vegas and the flag unraveled in the studio. Jones wondered how Mabel could afford the TV and the Mercedes. New wallpaper and a thick carpet as well as a white leather sofa and side chairs added to Jones's confusion. Mabel, could I ask you a few questions? Whatever you want. You seem like a woman with remarkable control, considering what's happened. Her green eyes filled and her voice became cute. There's nothing I can do about it now. She sucked in the cigarette smoke and exhaled quickly. Then she snapped the gum again. I guess Webster must have been involved in other things I'll never know about. Is that what you two were arguing about at the dock before he left? What? The argument on the dock. What were you so upset about? Going out to eat. She looked at her sister and put out the half-smoked cigarette in a wide glass ashtray. Are you sure you weren't upset about things he shouldn't have been involved in? Mr. Jones, you're really stretching it. I ain't, uh, I, I didn't kill him. I didn't say that. What things was he involved in? I don't know. While his truck's in the driveway, how did he get to the boat? asked Jones. Detective Hooper asked me that. Jones cringed at the thought of Hooper. Well, what did you tell him? Told him it was Webster's business. When did you decide to go down to the dock? asked Jones. Say what? I said Webster left, and you don't know how he left, but you went down to the dock because you were upset about supper. Yeah, that's right. Jones stepped around the long wood table. Did he tell you he was going out to sea early this week? Yes. And he usually comes back on Thursday, said Jones. Stinking a fish, she said, tightening her eyes. So what's the point? I'm trying to find out if he told you he was leaving. He just walked out the door. And you found it strange he didn't take his truck and you knew where he was going. A car picked him up. I saw the headlights, said Mabel. As far as leaving early, I never get into Webster's business. He was leaving early and that was that. A Strickland struggled with some questions about her relationship with Webster. Jones scanned the slate-top end tables. Under the heavy metal lamps with red felt lampshades were dozens of spent lottery tickets tucked under days of accumulated newspapers. Mrs. Howard, said Jones, turning. Mabel. Mabel, who do you think killed your husband? Oh, God, I... She began blowing her nose. Oh, I just don't know. Did he mention the storm coming up the coast? I don't follow the weather, she said, sniffling. I only know my husband came back dead. Came back from where? I don't know. What about you? Where were you after he left? Oh, alone, here, watching TV. You don't understand, Mr. Jones. When Webster left, or even during the week, he was so busy, I became like a hermit. He had call schedule, you know, fixing things around town. He had all his responsibilities at the church, and he was, when he was here, he hung out in that shack behind the house, tending his garden. Sounds like you never saw your husband, Mabel. He did his thing, I did mine. I used to do some cleaning around town, but I don't do that no more. Strickland stepped forward. Mabel, you must have had some thoughts about who would kill your husband. Nope. How about a place called R slash L? asked Strickland. Ah, I don't know. R slash L. Is it a restaurant or a bar? 
I don't know what you're talking about. She leaned back on the sofa and closed her eyes. This is making me tired. Well, we can go. Please. Strickland signaled with his head for Jones to follow him to the door, and he thanked Mabel for her cooperation as they rounded the white sofa. When he was at the door with Strickland, Jones scanned the new furniture. Just how much do you two make in a year's time? Oh, well, that's confidential. You got a court order or something? No, we're just asking questions. I apologize, Mabel. We'll head out of here now, said Strickland. Sometimes Matthias gets a little carried away. Jones put his hand on the outside screen as Mabel's voice quivered behind him. After all, my husband was just murdered. He shook his head and stepped onto the porch. Strickland was inside another full minute before the screen door creaked and he strutted across the porch. Jones waited for Mabel's sister to close the inside door. George, she's a liar. Come on, Matthias. The lady just likes to think she has money, that's all. Jones started down the stairs. No, no, something isn't right. I think she's a total phony. Hooper's voice echoed from between the porch railings. M5! M5 here, I agree, Jones. A small device attached to his belt was connected to an earphone. Nice of you to eavesdrop, Hooper, said Jones. I have heard every word you uttered in that house. Strickland leaned over the porch rail. Listen, detective. What you're doing isn't very legal. He's not a detective, George. I assure you I am a detective, and I assure you Mabel Howard is a phony like you say. Well, I guess I've been outmaneuvered, detective. Been there, done that. I kept the terrorists at bay in the Middle East. Jones and Strickland both descended the porch stairs. The Middle East? Strategic planning behind the lines, the Battle of Gumshit, said Hooper, adjusting the device. Yeah, probably for the terrorists, said Jones, as Strickland smiled. What was that, Jones? I said our country is grateful for your service. Oh, no. British. UK. Hip, hip. Thank you, sir. Jones looked into his wandering dark eyes. I bailed out at 500 feet in the dead of night, behind the enemy lines at Gumshoe. Yeah, you're a brave man, said Jones. Seems like I ended up in the Mediterranean. In the ocean? Yes, I was picked up by a cruise line. I had a lovely ten-day cruise. Gained ten pounds. When we reached a port in the Aegean, the battle was over. Yeah, that's wonderful, said Jones, taking a step toward the shack in the yard behind the house. Hooper stood only a few feet away as he spoke. Keeping undercover is a prerequisite for intelligence. Jones shook his head at Strickland. That it is, Detective Hooper, that it is. Hmm, track me down. Nice going. See, you have an intelligence background, too. Remember, said Strickland, you can't spy on these people without a court order. Aha! Uh -huh. Who's spying? He asked, opening his brown beady eyes and tucking the transmitter in his army jacket pocket. Strickland's cruiser horn sounded. My radio. I'll be right back. While he's gone, I suggest, Jones, that you follow me to Webster's shack. Did you just hear what he said about search warrants, Hooper? You'll miss the key evidence. What key evidence? asked Jones. Hooper motioned Jones across the uncut grass. Jones reluctantly shuffled behind him and up to the shack's weathered wood boards. As Hooper opened the door, Jones stepped inside the smoky shack and studied the wood walls. A calendar with the large Dewar's lumber truck and the gawky Arnie Dewar's sitting with his brothers on a load of lumber was nailed to one of the two-by-fours. All the days were X'd out, including the day Webster was killed at sea. In the corner, firewood was piled next to a Franklin stove and a stack of old yellow newspapers. A small multi-band radio was placed on an old wood crate on top of the workbench. Look at this. So we know Webster must have known about the storm, but he headed out early anyways. See, I don't think he left early just to beat the storm. It was something else that brought him out to sea, and quickly. Don't jump to conclusions, Jones. Hooper. Just adding my two cents. Jones stood before the calendar. Yet the days are already crossed out, like he planned for his usual fishing run, but something sidetracked him. Hooper was about to speak, but Jones, his lips pressed, stared angrily into his eyes. Hooper pretended to button his lips. I say drugs. You own a boat, you can make drug runs. Howard has no record. I've run a complete background check, said Hooper. The guy is dead. Obviously, something wasn't right, Hooper. I think Mabel might have had something to do with it. She was yelling at him because she probably knew what he was up to. Oh, so now you think that Mabel killed Webster. Ah, 
Well, maybe you have a good point, said Hooper, raising his index finger. We must catch this woman in her lie. Unfortunately, Hooper, I agree with you. Something else is going on here. That woman's popping out lottery tickets like Monopoly money. And look at the new Mercedes in the inside of the house. Brilliant, Jones, brilliant. Right. Let's get out of here before we get in trouble. Wait, wait! Hooper ran to the door and spread out his arms and legs. I'll have to ask you to close your eyes for 30 seconds while I leave. What? I will not allow my operation to be compromised. Eyes closed. Jones shook his head and briefly closed his eyes. Hooper crawled through the side window and raced across the field toward the woods. Strickland leaned in the doorway. That man is a nutcase, George. Figures Lark would have hired somebody like him. With a change of weather and a bad storm, Jones thinks that Webster was murdered and left on the boat to be wrecked in the storm, complicating the confusion instigated by Hooper. In the interrogation, Strickland joins Jones, prompting Mabel to become very, very tired. They leave Mabel behind in her house with no answers and Mabel's voice quivering. Mabel, however, has a new Mercedes and dozens of lottery tickets. Join me next time for episode three of The Handyman's Secret by Robert P. Fitton. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittonbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.